This is the Mormon Expression Podcast. Find us on the web at mormonexpression.com. Welcome to another edition of Mormon Expression. I'm your guest host, Tom Perry, and tonight we're going to be talking about a subject that's very close and near and dear to my heart, the Mountain Meadows Massacre. Um, and tonight, I'm very pri- privileged and honored to have on the show with us tonight, Dr. Gene Sessions. How are you doing tonight, Professor? Doing very well, Tom. I'm pleased. Just, just call me Gene. All right. We'll, we'll go with Gene. I appreciate that. Um, just... Just as a background, Gene Sessions was was born in Ogden, Utah. He received his BA from Utah State University and his PhD from FSU. And he's an author and editor of numerous books, including Mormon Thunder, a documentary history of Jedediah Morgan Grant, and Camp Floyd and the Mormons, The Utah War, Latter-day Patriots, Prophesying Upon the Bones, J. Reuben Clark and the Foreign Debt Crisis, and many others. He's also uh, been on some documentaries talking about the Mountain Meadows Massacre, like Burying the Past, the Legacy of the Mountain Meadows Massacre in 2004. And he's also been a past president of the Mountain Meadows Association back in, starting in 1998, is that correct? That's correct. So you've got quite the quite the history with the Mountain Meadows Massacre. I think it's uh, maybe a little more involved in some. I might mention that uh, my book on uh, Camp Floyd, which I finished for a deceased colleague, Camp Floyd and the Mormons, uh, has a lengthy chapter on the massacre, which was kind of how I got involved in it to start with on the academic side. And then I I came onto the board of the Mountain Meadows Association in 98 and was involved kind of on the ground floor of all that uh, activity that happened with the new monument in 99 and the digging up of the bones and all that kind of thing. And so if you wanted to tonight, we might get a little bit into that story uh, in addition to the uh, actual massacre and what its meaning is. Yeah, that might be good because you were actually intimately there. I mean, weren't you? You were actually part of it. Yeah, I I held uh, some of the remains in my hands, and that's uh, something that sends chill up and down my back to this day. Yeah, I was going to say, I don't know if that's a privilege or something that might haunt you. (laughs) It's it's a bit of a burden, actually, but uh, something that I had to do, and I was involved uh, very directly at that time. I was uh, president of the association a little bit after that. You mentioned beginning of 98. I was just on the board from 98 to 2005. I think I retired from the board. I was president for about a year and a half. Uh, I don't remember the years, uh, 2002 or three, something like that. It was a great opportunity because I got to know so many people on both sides. Uh, I don't have any ancestors involved on either side myself, but I got to know folks from Arkansas and others connected to the Arkansas people and also people here in the Lee family and, and other uh, people on the, on the murderer's side. And it was uh, a very interesting experience to be able to travel to Arkansas and uh, have them come here. And I, I developed some very dear friendships uh, uh, I'm kind of a, a huggy, uh, can't wait to see you next friend with uh, Patty Norris, who's uh, who's the great great granddaughter of Trefinia Fancher Wilson, who was only 
11 months old when the massacre happened and was, of course, uh, rescued uh, uh, by the Army in 1859 and repatriated to Arkansas. So I, I, I've, uh, it's been a blessing in a lot of ways, but in other ways, you mentioned it's, uh, it's not something that I... I it, it, it's, uh, I wrote a book review for this uh, book by Rick Turley and Ron Walker and uh, Glenn Leonard for the Overland Journal. And at the end, I said, this is a story that unfortunately has no end. And when you find out about it, it it it, it has a life of its own, and it, it really doesn't have an end. And that's yeah. that's unfortunate. But I, you should be commended for for reaching out to some of the descendants, like you are. I think I think uh, that's a very strong step in trying to heal some of these very very sore wounds. <laughs> and you know, I might mention Tom that the current church historian Mar- Marlon Jensen, uh, who's from up in. Uh, my neck of the woods here in Weber County uh, uh, has uh, done a magnificent job of uh, dealing with these various ancestor groups. And when I was involved, there was just the Mountain Meadows Association and, and an, an organization called the Mountain Meadows Monument Foundation. Now there's a another group uh, available only to descendants of the victims. I'm an honorary uh, board member of that because I'm not a descendant of the victims, but. I can tell you last summer, uh, having uh, attended a couple of meetings and and talked with a number of my friends in uh, two of those organizations, including Patty and uh, Terry Fancher, the president of the Mountain Meadows Association today, that uh, they, they think Marlin has just done an incredible job of uh, uh, working with them, making them feel uh, better about uh, where the church is, Particularly with regard to their desire to have the the site declared a national historic landmark, and uh, Marlin is working very hard to see that that happens, and that's made them very pleased. Uh, last uh, uh, summer, they had an anniversary of the 150th anniversary of the repatriation of the children, and uh, they they met at the meadows and had quite a ceremony. And the church uh, paid for everything, uh, paid for the food, uh, set up a uh, a big uh, pavilion for them to have their meeting there, a PA system, uh, and they, they're they're grateful for this. And I don't think I'm, I'm not trying to tell you that these folks are about to become Mormons, so, <laughs> even though a handful have surprisingly. Uh, this we have victim descendants uh, who are Mormons, but uh, they 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 their feelings of uh, distrust and bitterness toward. The church have abated considerably, even since the days when President Hinckley was reaching out to them back at the end of the 90s. I think Marlin deserves a lot of credit for that, and I think the feelings. In fact, I know I've I've had them, these folks tell me that their feelings toward Utah and toward the church are much more positive now than they've ever been. So I, I think right now, uh, with the 150th anniversaries kind of sliding away now in, in memory, there was the. The one in ninety or in uh, two thousand seven of the one hundred fiftieth anniversary of the massacre itself, and then this one about the repatriation of the children. Uh, they're still active. The groups still want this national historic landmark status. The church has uh, purchased uh, uh, recently, at a great expense, a, a, a large parcel uh, on the north end, uh, just before you cross the highway on your way north out of the meadow, uh, uh, where we think there are two or three more graves, and it promised to protect those, and so. Some of the descendants, uh, Scott Fancher, who was the past president of the Mount Meadows Monument Foundation, loves to say, 
Well, having the Mormon Church own these grave sites is like having uh, the family of Lee Harvey Oswald looking after the grave of President Kennedy. <laughs> and uh, yeah, so there are some people who aren't real happy about that, but sure. the church uh, happens to own all that property and uh, where the graves are. And uh, I don't think we're going to see anytime soon the church say, well, you know what, we'll give that up to the, to the government or uh, and so on. And, and uh, Hinckley promised uh, in the dedication ceremony 99 that the church would take care of that property and work with the descendants to make sure they were happy with how it was being taken care of. So I'm not telling you everybody's you know, jumping up and down with happiness over the church's involvement, but I am saying that Right now, my sense is that uh, the feelings among the victims' families are much better than they've ever been, thanks to what the church has tried to do, and particularly uh, Marlon Jensen. Yeah, I I completely agree. Um, so before we keep going on, I did want to also mention that uh, you're a current professor at Weber State University. Is that still yeah, correct? I've been, uh, yeah, I've been at Weber State for 35 years. I'm getting pretty old but i'm sure having a good time and it's it's been a great life and you're still chair history right now so i know i'm not chair any longer i spent six years as chair and uh found out i'm not very good at that sort of thing so i'm <laughs> back to the classroom now and loving loving my uh full-time teaching again i'm teaching utah history as a matter of fact and uh, this week and next we're dealing with the utah war and the, and the massacre in that class and very important for 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 uh students being educated to teach Utah history, whether fourth grade, seventh grade here in the state where that's required with kids, that they they know the, the, the brutal facts, they know what happened, and so they're able to deal with that uh, however they can. I, and in fourth grade, they don't they don't mess with it too much, obviously, but in the seventh grade, they do. And so uh, we, we in the state who teach Utah history on a college level work very hard to try to make sure that the story of the massacre is well told and, and well understood. Well, I, for one, am very, very, very pleased to hear that. I mean, just as a side note, um, do you come across a lot of people or oh, students that have, oh, yeah. have no idea about any of it? Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. And, uh, yeah, I, I think I, I know where you're going, and I'll, I'll tell you just real quickly my own story. I was, uh, uh, I was told uh, by seminary teachers and so on that it didn't happen or that it was the Indians and, the Mormons got a bum rap, and they didn't do it, and so on like that. And it wasn't until after uh, after I had uh, uh, gotten well into my college career that I found out about it. And uh, back in those days, uh, it was still pretty hush-hush. Now it's uh, kind of out on the table. I mean, we've got all these books by Denton and Bagley and and these three uh, Mormon uh, historians I mentioned. And, and there had been a lot of attention with the, uh, with the sesquicentennials passing. Been a lot of tension in the paper and uh, uh, national press. Uh, books like John Krakauer's Under the Banner of Heaven, two chapters on on the massacre there. And as we ran up to the Olympics, uh, all the news magazines like New Yorker and Newsweek, from from you know Hoi Polloi down to the common news magazines, ran articles on Utah, and all of them uh, talked about the massacre. And some of them in some ways that weren't terribly accurate or flattering. So it's 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 out. Big time now, unlike it was when I was a kid, and I don't know how old you are, but uh, it's sure out a lot more now, and uh, and that's good. Yeah, I I'm I'm 35 now, and I didn't yeah. learn I didn't I mean I guess I'd heard about it in passing, but I didn't know about it until I was 32. And it, then wow. then, then no, it I don't think that's unusual, Tom. I really don't. I don't well, think that's I unusual at all. I still feel unusual, but 
<laughs> yeah. But w- but when it hit me, yeah, it hit me right in the face, and and I I uh, I became semi obsessed with it. We were trying to read everything I could about it. So yeah. it's well, I have uh, my best friend at Weber State is uh, is a, a business professor who was serving as an elders quorum president at the age of forty, and this is. Uh, some 25 years ago now, and he found out about it, and that uh, brought him right out of the back door of the church. Uh, he's now uh, not a, a member of the church, and that was what got him uh, confused and worried. And But you're still friends and, with him, is that right? Oh, we're, we're best friends. Great. Uh, he, he, we're, we're just as close as brothers, maybe closer. That's that's really cool. Yeah. All right, so let's... let's. Well, his, his thing, I mean, not to talk too much about him, but his thing is, is I, I tease him that he's the best Mormon I know, <laughs> and his hell is going to be going to the celestial kingdom. <laughs> That'll be his hell. That'll be his hell. Yeah, that's great. Because <laughs> he'll have to rub shoulders with all these people he doesn't like. <laughs> but he, no, we're 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 closer than brothers, and uh, and we talk a lot about uh, about these issues. And uh, in fact, he has accompanied me uh, on some of my excursions uh, uh, to uh, meet with. Descendants. In fact, he went with me to uh, the BYU archaeology offices uh, two days after the bones came up, and he's held them in his hand as well. So wow. uh, we're 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 uh, we're we're just across the line from each other on 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 what we do about the church. But that's what got him uh, upset, and I know that's the case with a lot of folks. And maybe we can talk a little bit later if you want to about why I don't think that's a great a great idea for people to let this bother them that way. Yeah, I'd like to hear I'm that. A historian. I'm a historian, and, and I can deal with it in all kinds of ways. But uh, I'm sure you've got I, I'm sure you've got some invaluable advice for people like that. They, well, they, that's up to you. I mean, whatever you want to do tonight. But uh, if you want, we could talk a little bit about that. Okay. Well, let's let's go ahead and get started. For some of those that, unfortunately, I guess are probably not not too aware about the Mount Meadows massacre, or just sure. have heard the name and not. Don't really know what's going on with it. Let's let's kind of paint a picture of what was happening in Utah okay. um, in the early fall of 1857. Okay, I kind of knew you wanted me to do that, so I've been trying to figure out how to do it in five minutes. <laughs> <laughs> it's pretty hard, pretty hard call. But basically, it's a, it occurs. Uh, it occurred during the Utah War episode, uh, better known to a lot of Mormons as the Johnston's Army episode, when. President Buchanan sent the Federal Army here to install a new governor and to replace Brigham Young as governor, and he had reason to believe that uh, he might meet resistance uh, from the Mormons, and so uh, sent the governor with a, an accompanying military force, and it was the biggest uh, military force uh, operating in the United States at the time, and uh, 2,500, 3,000 soldiers marching on Utah through the summer and fall of 1857. Well, an early winter, and a Mormon... Uh, resistance, uh, the famous Echo Canyon War, where Brigham Young sent the Mormons up into the up into the mountains and up into Wyoming to harass the army with orders not to hurt anybody, but to burn wagons, uh, shoot mules, etc. Combined to keep the army out until a deal was worked out in the spring of '58, and uh, uh, the the army came on in and occupied uh, uh, Utah for the next three, four, two, three years till the Civil War came. And everybody went off to kill each other back east. And they built Camp Floyd out in the uh, the Cedar Valley west of Utah Lake. And they were there uh, during that period of time. Well, uh, during that summer, while the Army was on its way, of course, there were ordinary westward-moving mig- 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 migrants, uh, overlanders, 
several parties of them, and some of them chose to mesh Utah together as they found out about this problem that was developing. Some decided to come on through Utah. Uh, there was a party from northwest Arkansas, and it had gathered up some other folks along the way that uh, decided to come on in and go down the Mormon corridor, what we now think of as the I-15 corridor. This party had uh, a number of families. It also had a number of cattle. There's a debate about how many the uh, cattle there were, but uh, most historians think that was a significant part of the problem that occurred. As they went down the, the corridor toward uh, Cedar, which was the last outpost the Mormons had uh, left in place, everybody else had been called back from San Bernardino and Carson Valley and so on under this, uh, this siege situation that was going on. Uh, on the way down there, uh, uh, problems between the between this Arkansas party and uh, not and Mormons particularly, and also the the, the Indians and uh, uh, Brigham Young, who was the Indian agent, had been trying to keep the Indians uh, from attacking the the immigrants uh, over the years, and he he called all the sub chiefs in and said, "Hey, all bets are off. We're at war with these people, and you can do what you want." Uh, so uh, anyway, on the way down, a number of uh, incidents occur. There's debate about uh, uh, exactly what happened, although uh, looking at contemporary sources, we're now sure that there were some uh, rather serious confrontations between Mormons and these immigrants over particularly uh, uh, their cattle who were tromping out through the winter fields and this and that. There was a uh, a cow uh, died, and some Indians uh, ate it, and maybe some of them died, got sick. Uh, so they were accused of poisoning this uh, cow. Uh, anyway, uh, long story made short, if we can, they got uh, down to Cedar City. Uh, word had uh, gone ahead of them that they were uh, aggressive, and they were troublemakers, and there had been problems. And, and at Cedar, uh, while they were there, uh, some incidents occurred uh, uh, we won't have time to get deeply into all that. Uh, the Mormons decided, the uh, stake president there, a fellow called Isaac Haight, uh, and the uh, local uh, leadership decided that these people uh, needed to be, quote-unquote, punished for the things they had done up and down the corridor and uh, there in Iron County. Well, uh, they, the plan was that uh, John D. Lee, who had contact with the Paiutes, would go out and rouse them up and get them to attack this party. We, we, we now think the attack was supposed to happen down on uh, Santa Clara where the Magatsu Creek and the Spanish Trail comes down onto the Santa Clara. But anyway, one thing led to another, and there begins to be fighting out there. And uh, during the week of September 6th through the 11th, 1857, uh, the Mormons, uh, the Mormon militia, the Nauvoo Legion, begins to uh, migrate out there. Uh, 50, 60 guys eventually are out there. And uh, one thing leads to another. They're, they're uh, convinced that these folks know they're involved in this supposed Indian attack that's uh, kind of gone bad on them. Uh, the Paiutes don't have much stomach for it. They're not armed well. They've got cattle. They are starting to disappear. And so uh, I'm really, really oversimplifying this. I mean, there's plenty, plenty more going on. But I'm of course, to yeah, that, that's all right. Uh, anyway, uh, on... Uh, on uh, Thursday and Friday, September 10th and September 11th, 1857, the Mormon militia, these militiamen, uh, decide uh, with with some collusion back to Cedar and uh, to the Parowan, 
commander of the Nauvoo Legion, William Dame, who's, who's been kind of involved on the periphery to this moment, that uh, these people uh, have got to be killed because they know too much, and if they go on to California, there's going to be big trouble, and so on. And so on the afternoon of September 11th, uh, they're lured out of their uh, wagon circle where they've been putting up a heck of a fight against the Indians and the Mormons, of course, now mostly the Mormons, and uh, uh, were systematically uh, murdered, about 120 folks, uh, mostly women and kids. Uh, the order was that... Uh, Everyone was to be killed old enough to tell the tale, quote-unquote. Mormon theology uh, suggested that you could not be forgiven for shedding innocent blood under any circumstance, and so uh, the idea was, well, the kids who are eight and under will be sa- or under the age of eight will be saved. As it turns out, uh, the, they saved 17 kids. Uh, the oldest one was uh, six years and 11 months old. Everyone else was murdered. And uh, there's no question that the Mormons, who we've known for a long, long time, going way back into the uh, 20th century, that from evidence that was extant from trials and other testimonies, that the Mormons did most of the killing and uh, indeed administered coup de grace to uh, folks who'd been wounded, women, kids, and men. Um, the uh, folks in Arkansas, just to kind of put a, a footnote on this, uh, they, they they can be very kindly disposed toward Utah and toward Mormons, but they they really bristle up and get red in the eye when when they uh, have to think about the cowardly uh, act of that afternoon when these folks were lured out under white flags and then murdered. Can't say I blame them. Uh, no, I can't blame them either. And uh, there's just absolutely no excuse for it. Uh, this was uh, been all kinds of thought over the years by all kinds of people about why this happened. Uh, uh, there are theories that Brigham Young uh, ordered these people killed. Uh, Will Bagley's theory is that they were ordered murdered to get revenge for the the deaths of Joseph and Hiram Smith and then the uh, killing in May of that year of Parley P. Pratt in Arkansas. Uh, Bagley's thesis in his book, Blood of the Prophets, is that this was... Uh, this was uh, the, the the reason they were murdered, and that uh, he, as he puts it, uh, they were dead as soon as they entered Utah Territory. Uh, other theories are uh, put out in the 1970s by a fellow called William Wise, and then repeated by Sally Denton in her book in the uh, early part of this uh, decade, or well, this century, when the decade ended or not yet, um, that it was done for their wealth. Uh, there was some evidence that came forth after the uh, massacre, that there was a lot of money in the train. Uh, people back home said, oh, yeah, uh, my cousin or my sister was had uh, X amount of, of uh, gold, and, and that Brigham Young ordered them, uh, when he found out how wealthy they were, ordered them murdered for their money. And I'll tell you that most folks in Arkansas subscribe to that theory. Uh, even the most kindly of them uh, believe that it was ordered, they were ordered uh, killed by for their money. Um, the... Uh, the consensus of most historians follows a little more closely what you find in this book by the three Mormon scholars who spent a million dollars over the last five, six years to write their book, Massacre at Mountain Meadows. That's Walker, Turley, and Leonard. That uh, what this really was was a combination of uh, 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 bad decision-making on the part of all kinds of people, particularly the local leaders down that way, the dangers of the militia tradition, the prevalence of violence and violent language and violent propensities in the West. Um, Some paranoia. 
Yeah, we think, yeah, the war, war hysteria, uh, paranoia, uh, all kinds of issues like that that kind of combine to, and then a lot of bad assumptions that were made during that week, uh, during the siege. Um, so uh, the, the, uh, the, the debate will go on and on and on about why it happened. We know pretty much what happened. I don't think there's much question now with all this research and all this writing that that we can't uh, sit back and say, oh, here's, here's what happened. But uh, there are a lot of folks who want to say, well, uh, this is proof that uh, Mormonism is evil. It was evil then, and it's uh, violent. This is Krakauer's thesis, of course, in his book right. about the Lafferty's. Uh, and, uh, and uh, oh, it's proof that Brigham Young was a bad person, and, and he ordered these people murdered and so on like that. Uh, it, it, the, the trouble with those uh, conspiracy theories, in my view, and... Uh, and this is just my opinion, having looked into this pretty deeply over the years. The trouble with those uh, conspiracy theories is that if you buy one of them, then everything else we know about what happened uh, in Utah uh, with regard to that company and, and its, uh, its uh, tragic, uh, atro uh, atrocious demise, it doesn't make any sense. Uh, you, you, you don't have to defend Brigham Young. You just have to look at what happened. And if it was a conspiracy to have them murdered from the time, as, as uh, Will says, the time they entered the state, they were dead, then all the rest of what happened down the way uh, makes no sense. And we've got enormous amounts of evidence about what happened on the way down there. That that does make sense when you when you figure it out without trying to pin some giant conspiracy on the on the leaders in Salt Lake. Now the question then comes up, well, uh, did the leaders in Salt Lake, even if they didn't order this, did they did they uh, set the stage for it with uh, some of their preaching and some of their uh, belligerence? And, and I don't think there's any question about that, that uh, uh, this this whole siege mentality that was set up there in 57 uh, with the army on its way certainly contributed to the paranoia and the war hysteria. I mean, there were the folks down there uh, scared that maybe the army wasn't coming down Echo Canyon, it was going to come down the old Spanish Trail, and would dump out right there uh, in Iron County instead and then attack uh, Salt Lake from the south. And There was all kinds of that hysteria uh, taking place. And so you, know, you, can, you can say, uh, sure, uh, this could have been handled a whole lot better by a whole lot of people, including the leaders in Salt Lake. Uh, well, and, and it's, just, it's a complicated. And now, the, the other thing, and, and this is important, Tom. Uh, I'm talking, I'm telling this story way too long, but no uh, Rick Turley, who's the assistant church historian, now is is spending most of his time with church uh, money, and uh, uh, he's hiring uh, uh, folks to help him writing a book about the cover-up. And the cover-up of the massacre, as you and I talked about earlier, was pretty shameful, and the church engaged in it for for more than a century. And uh, and so there, the, the, the fact that there was a cover-up and the fact that uh, there's, there's blame to go around, uh, including right at the top, uh, nobody's disputing that anymore. Yeah, I think I agree with you. I think there's actually more guilt to be had with the cover-up than sure, sure, the initial absolutely. setup. Yeah. Um, I just wanted to ask a question in regards to Will Bagley's theories because I've read his sure. book. Um, sure. the, the Parley P. Pratt... Um, uh -huh. Assassination. Just yeah. in your you know, own opinion, how much do you think that was a factor? Do you think it was a factor at all or not? I don't, I don't think it was a factor at all, except that there's no doubt that they, the folks in Iron County, had heard about it. Um, I don't buy 
uh, Will's thesis at all. Now, in fact, I read that book for the University of Oklahoma Press, and I recommended publication before it you know, came out because Will did a prodigious amount of research. Unfortunately, he didn't have access to everything that these, new, these three uh, Mormons had, and so there's a lot of things that he didn't know about when he was doing his writing. And Will uh, had already committed to his uh, patron that he was going to pin it on Brigham Young. He was convinced Brigham Young was responsible. I don't, uh, I don't think uh, the Pratt murder had any more to do with it than to cause the folks there and, and elsewhere in Utah to feel this sense of foreboding. Well, here we've got another one of our leaders has been murdered, and and uh, we've got this army on the way out here, and we've, we're under siege, and and uh, we don't know how this all can turn out. I mean, one trouble with history, Tom, and you know this is that we always tend to look back on the past uh, in terms of how it turned out. We yeah. know how it turned out. Now, nobody living in the past said, you know, gee, I'm living in the past. <laughs> they, they didn't yes. know how it's all going to work out. And so uh, I, I don't want to... I don't want to be the judge of uh, people who were living in Utah in 1857, either in Iron County or in Salt Lake County or place else, in terms of how they, how afraid they were. Although I can guess, it was pretty terrifying. And I think the murder of Pratt played a big part in that. And, and everybody, of course, in Utah knew about that by the time the high summer came that he'd been killed out there. Uh, but that uh, this caused these people to be marked for murder. Uh, I don't think that makes a whole lot of sense. Yeah, that's my own personal view of it. Okay, thank you for your insight there. So let's so let's move to some of the people that were involved, some of the local people down there, like John D. Lee. We have, okay. like you mentioned, Isaac Haight, William Dame. Uh-huh. There's, I know there's a few other names like John Higby, Philip Klingon yes. Smith. Yes. Um, we know Klingon Smith was the bishop at Cedar. Uh, Higby was the highest ranking. Um, uh, militia person on the scene when it was done. Dane was the stake president of Parowan and also the commander of the Nauvoo Legion in Iron County. Uh, Haight, of course, the the uh, stake president of Vera Cedar. Uh, Lee, uh, who, of course, became the scapegoat, was executed 20 years later, the only person to be punished for the crime other than excommunications. There are a bunch of them were excommunicated by the Mormon Church. But uh, Lee was... Uh, Somebody who took a lead role early on in the uh, episode by going out to get the Paiutes riled up at the beginning of it. Uh, there are, you mentioned the, probably the principal characters on the murderer's side, but uh, there are uh, 50 or uh, maybe as many as 60 other men uh, who were complicit in the whole thing once it got underway late that week. We and some some of the names we don't actually know. Is that correct? Yeah, we're not really sure. I think the uh, latest book uh, by these three Mormon scholars uh, meticulously has it has an appendix and meticulously lists uh, everybody who was involved, but with some doubt about we're not sure about a few others who may have been involved. Yeah, but uh, they've done enough research that that you can you can say, gee, my ancestor was down there and uh, and look up in this appendix and see exactly what what he was doing out there that day. And the trouble with something like this is, uh, Tom, that uh, first of all, they swore a blood oath not to talk about it, but that didn't work. I mean, it was pretty apparent to their families and lots of other people pretty soon after that they had been involved in this blood well, thing. And that's a that's a strong sure. guilt thing, even for yeah, that. Sure, sure. But then you, you start uh, 
when you finally do break the silence, if you do, and some did, uh, you're going to want to put yourself in the best light. So a lot of them said, well, you know, I was out there, but I just was riding picket. I didn't do anything. And and uh, who knows? Maybe they really believe that. Maybe maybe there were some, some guys out there that day who who shot a child and uh, and uh, 15 or 20 or 30 years later uh, had wiped that memory completely out of his mind. I mean, I'm not a psychologist, but I know that's easy to do when you've done something really horrible. It's easy to convince yourself, well, I really didn't do that, did I? So it's complicated that way. Yeah. We need to mention Juanita Brooks before we forget. Uh, this very courageous uh, southern Utah uh, granddaughter of uh, one of the one of the people out there, Dudley Levitt, uh, who decided in the 30s to, to blow the whistle on this story. And, and uh, what a great hero she was. And, and under the Federal Writers Project produced this story, The Mountain Meadows Massacre, published by Stanford University in 1950. Uh, Juanita, an untrained historian, but a very fine writer and somebody who just you know wanted this story out. Her husband was the sheriff there in St. George and not supportive and the church uh, fathers there and her neighbors and all uh, persecuted her for it and etc uh, but uh, played a major role right there in the middle of the 20th century in getting this story out of the out of the background and people people talked to her she she actually talked with with old men who had been out there and uh, yeah I, so, with, without her I don't think we would be anywhere near we are with the knowledge no, I, I don't think so either I mean it, it's pretty hard to believe that that uh, 150 years could go by, and we wouldn't know a whole lot more than we knew in 1945 or 49. <laughs> but certainly, uh, Juanita, uh, with her courageous work, you know, you look at her book now, and I read it a second time uh, just uh, right after I read the Walker uh, Turley Leonard book. I read Juanita's a second time to kind of see how they they matched up, and and uh, she 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 didn't have the tools or the the resources available to do anywhere close to the thorough job that those guys did, or even somebody like Bagley did, or Denton did. But uh, nevertheless, it's an incredible uh, uh, bit of work and uh, broke the ground. And she she accepted whole uh, cloth lots of the things that people said, like, well, they were coming down there and they were uh, they had a, some guy rode through town with a pistol and said, this is the pistol that killed old Joe Smith, and there's another bullet in here for Brigham and those kinds of stories that people used in the aftermath to justify the event. Uh, we now doubt most of those stories because we don't have contemporary uh, records. We don't have somebody who, who said in his diary, oh, yeah, the day our party went through and guy went through with his pistol. So so uh, even with that, you, you, you read Juanita's book here 60 years later, and it's an amazing achievement, and talk about courage. Well, yeah. I mean, think about it. She she didn't have the internet. She didn't have the money, and she was doing yeah. it in, in the face of severe uh, hostility against the yeah. church that she was a member of, and yeah. she did it all on her own. And her book, like you said, that was the first book that I read. And a lot of yes. a lot of times when people ask me what book should I should I read about it, and I I usually say, well, start with Juanita Brooks. Start there. Book. Yeah, I tell people the same thing. Start there. Because yeah. yeah, she she really is a hero in my book. Yeah, there's no doubt about it. And uh, I met her uh, when she was an older person, and uh, she, in her declining years, uh, she, I don't know whether she had Alzheimer or whether it was just dementia, but uh, she kind of became uh, like that. But I met her before that had set in, and she was still doing remarkable things. She did a, uh, a book on Emily, um, one of uh, 
John D's wives who uh, ran the ferry there for a few years and and uh, did some other uh, really fine work. So we remember her for the uh, Mount Meadows Massacre book, but she remained a very fine scholar and and uh, con- continued to be committed to trying to tell as much of the story of Southern Utah as she could. And not only things related to massacre, but other kinds of, of subjects as well. I agree. Okay, so let, let's kind of get to uh, the heart of the matter, I guess, with this whole thing. Brigham Young's involvement. Now, I know you've you've mentioned that uh, you and and actually a lot of historians are very skeptical about Brigham Young's initial involvement prior to the massacre, but it's it's pretty close to uh, unanimous that he was directly involved with the cover up after the fact. No doubt. Um, no doubt about that. I don't know anyone. Uh, from the top uh, in the church uh, history thing. I mean, Marlon Jensen knows that as well as anybody. I think uh, President Hinckley, who tried to inaugurate some of this openness, uh, knew that as well as anybody. Yeah, there was a concerted cover-up. Uh, Young believed that uh, if the, the facts of this ever got out, that it would destroy the church, and it might have had it not been for the Civil War. I mean, people forget that uh, the... The shockwaves of this were just beginning to grow to a point where there might have been some huge federal investigation. There could have been all kinds of repercussions uh, when the events in the East began to uh, disintegrate rapidly into the Civil War. And so uh, it wasn't until after the Civil War, uh, we get into the late 60s and the early 70s, that uh, folks in Arkansas and uh, federal uh, Officials here in Utah began to press for some kind of investigation. And at that point, uh, the, the cat's out of the bag, and uh, and the church excommunicated uh, all the the people you mentioned uh, even before there were any prosecutions. And uh, the feds were trying to catch all of these guys, and uh, and only uh, they settled on Lee uh, for a lot of reasons. He was uh, he was an easy target. Uh, he was somebody that was kind of a tough guy to to like for some. And uh, if you talk to members of the Lee family today, they get a little bristly when you say that, but it's true. Uh, he, he was a, and you can look at his bad or good about him, but he was somebody who didn't mess around. He, he was tough and had opinions, and and uh, and it made it so a lot of people were willing to, to say, well, that, you know, that Lee, we can, we can see him go down. They were hoping to pin it on Brigham, were never able to do that, and uh, right up to the moment of his execution, Lee refused to to uh, pin it on, on Young. Um, there has been suggestion that there is evidence that he did. Uh, for example, in his confessions uh, called uh, Mormonism Unveiled, uh, Lee supposedly uh, said, and it's in the book, but he said, yeah, it was ordered by Brigham Young through George Smith. Well, historians are pretty convinced a lot of part of that book was put together by his attorney who had been given the, the manuscript. Uh, as his payment. Um, we have his journal accounts where he repeatedly denied that Young had him do with it, didn't know about it until I told him about it, and so on. But certainly the cover-up, uh, there's no there's no question about that. There's no debate about that whatsoever. It was concerted. It was uh, undertaken with great vigor uh, by the church because uh, uh, Young was convinced that this, this could just really bring down... Uh, the whole uh, mass could come falling down uh, because uh, because of what these Mormons had done. You know, it, talking about the cover-up, you know, the cover-up um, is actually one of the things that doesn't sit with me very well at all. Um, and, I understand. And 
you know, when you were mentioned that uh, Richard Turley is doing the follow-up to their first book. So it's going to be a a blunt. Uh, I talked with Rick uh, here, uh, gosh, six months ago. uh, I kind of trying to keep up with where it is, and I I said, (laughs) you know, I said, are you going to pull your punches? I mean, I really asked him directly. He said, nope. This is going to be full out, uh, no punches pulled. uh, uh, description of the cover-up. Well, he has. Uh, yeah, I don't. I don't. Uh, I don't wish I was him having to write no, about that. No, that's going to be tough. But uh, and here he is, the assistant church historian, and uh, and doing this under the uh, the auspices of the church. And some are going to say, <laughs> "Well, that makes it suspicious because how can we trust him?" But uh, I think when this book comes out, just like the 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 one these three did on the massacre, you're going to see that that uh, they're not trying to hide anything. Nobody yeah. comes away. Nobody comes away unspotted in this book they did on the massacre. Nobody. I agree. So let's let's also there's there's also a, a moment in the massacre that I want to I want to talk about that for some reason uh, doesn't sit well with me either that Will Bagley talks about and actually I think all of them talk about a little bit is the is the monument that was put up by Major Carlton um, in 1859. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. Because they got there and all the bodies were just strung out. And it was them that uh, dug a mass grave, is that correct? And then put up a monument? Well, not to <clears throat> take too much time on this, Tom, but it's kind of a long story. That, that One of the things that's done so well with me, and I, I have to tell you with my students and the people in Arkansas either, is that once the deed was done, they didn't take much time trying to bury the bodies. I mean, they, they drug them off into some ravines, kicked a little dirt and some brush on them. Yeah, it kind of is a... the heck out. Yeah, they wanted to get the heck out of there. And so, yeah, it's true that uh, the bodies were strewn all over the place and animals drug them around. And, it's like insult to injury to something that's already... Yeah, it, is, yeah it, it doesn't sit well with anybody. I mean, that's just... And the only excuse for it is, is they were... It, there's no, it's not an excuse, but I mean, the only way you can try to understand this, these guys were just horrified at what they had just done under this sense of panic and duty or whatever it was operating in their minds. And so they didn't want, and and, and most of those guys uh, that we know anything about later never went back out there. Never went back out to the meadows, ever. They 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 wouldn't go out there if you held a gun to their heads. <laughs> so it's not an excuse, but it helps you understand a little bit why they did that. Well, anyway, the end of the story, of course, as you point out, is that the army comes there in May of 1859. We're looking at a year and a half later, more. And they find uh, stuff all over. I mean, these bones that we dug up down there uh, in '99 had uh, gnaw marks on them from critters, coyotes, gnawed on them, and drug them around, and so on. And so the the army gathers them up, buried them in three, four mass graves. And the biggest, most uh, noted—not maybe the biggest, but the most noted—grave was at the uh, the side of the wagon circle, where the uh, where the uh, uh, Arkansans had dug a rifle pit, and they they buried uh, partial remains of 34 uh, victims there. And uh, Carlton um, Carlton identified the number by counting the, the shoulder blades of the 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 remains. So there was uh, cranial matter, there were long bones, there was uh, vertebrate matter and ribs and all this stuff. And they and they apparently we 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 know now by what we we accidentally discovered while we were digging for the new monument that he buried the the remains in categories. He didn't try to to create 34 separate bodies. He buried the cranial matter at one end, the ribs, the 
the vertebrate matter, the long bones, and so on, uh, in that uh, rifle pit. And then erected at this point time, they erected this big uh, stone cairn over the top of it, and put a sign on it that said, uh, "Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord." And of course, Carlton knew, and anybody by that time who had looked into it all knew that this had been done by these local uh, settlers. Uh, uh, so uh, over the years, that uh, monument was torn down. It was rebuilt. It was torn down. It was rebuilt. Uh, Bagley uh, Will loves to make a big thing out of the visit to the site by Brigham Young, where uh, the, uh, he either watched, or it depends on who you read, or ordered the sign taken down and said, "Yes, vengeance is mine, and I have taken some." And uh, this, this of course, becomes kind of a centerpiece of. of uh, uh, Will Bagley's thesis that here Brigham Young was admitting. Uh, other scholars look at that and say, look, he's trying to shore up these people. He's trying to shore everybody up for the for the cover-up and for this uh, solid front against blaming uh, uh, anybody for this except that uh, you know something terrible happened here and and I'm not going to feel too bad about it because uh, these are our enemies anyway. And you know he's kind of making that sort of uh, subconscious uh, rhetoric. Uh, so anyway, it makes a big thing out of that, and that uh, that cairn was torn down, rebuilt. Finally, in 1932, the Utah Trails Association, under the leadership of Mormon Apostle, Apostle George Albert Smith, went down there and rebuilt the cairn a little bit. Not, it's not nearly as big, and tried to kind of cement it into something permanent with a little rock wall around it. Uh, the, the trouble is the Magatsu Creek going right by it was eroding down and down and down, and uh, and uh, part of that monument was sloughing off into the into the gulch. Well, uh, President Hinckley goes up there in '98 uh, and sees that mess and finds out that it's on church property because the guy who owned that piece of ground didn't want it. Tried to give it to some people in Arkansas, they didn't want it, so he gave it to the church. And so the irony there of the church owning that gravesite. Well, anyway, that's when when Hinckley said, "Well, we've got to rebuild that. The church will rebuild that." And got the Mountain Meadows Association involved in that, and we met. The board met with uh, with uh, Hinckley in October '98, and and uh, he said, "I want to get this thing uh, this thing fixed." And so we built this big new monument down there. Um, the uh, the uh, uh, tried to rebuild the cairn and cement it in place, and they put a big sort of sandstone wall around it, a fence and all. Yeah. And at that yeah. time, the, the church. Uh, which had never been willing before, said, yeah, and we can put interpretive uh, markers there that pin it on the militiamen instead of having it be vaguely, well, a bunch of people died here and we don't want to happen to them and maybe the Indians did it and who knows and so on, which had been what the case had been before. And so we now have interpretive markers there uh, explaining in a few paragraphs what you and I have been talking about here all night uh, to, to, to say that this was the, the Mormons uh, and and, and uh, uh, some Indians whom they had cajoled into doing this, where we've long since tried to get people to stop saying, "Oh, it was the Indians uh, who did it," or the Indians and, the, and they persuaded the Mormons. It's the other way around. I mean, the Indians were brought in as as uh, some muscle for this whole thing that was planned and executed by the the Navajo Legion. You know, that really is. One of the saddest things is the Indians, those local Paiute Indians, have had a serious cross to bear with all this, haven't they? Yeah, they got hammered. And what's happened now, ironically, Tom, is that they now deny that the tribal position 
is officially that there were no Paiutes involved in the Mount Meadows oh, massacre. Oh. <laughs> in 1990, they got up with the church and state and people and sort of uh, took, took responsibility. The tribal leader was an old guy. I can seem, can't think of his name. Uh, he since passed, and in uh, 99, when they did the new monument, just nine years later, the new tribal chairperson, who's a, a woman, can't think of her name either, embarrassingly, I can see her face, I uh, said, "Oh no, no, we were we weren't involved at all." So they're they're in denial about being involved in any way, shape, or form, and have some. Uh, this uh, book by uh, Forrest Kutch, uh, the uh, governor's Native American guy, uh, uh, accepted whole cloth that uh, they were just uh, kind of sitting around up on the hills watching it, and the Mormons were all dressed up like Indians. They didn't have any to do with it. But that being said. Uh, I don't know anybody now, including uh, these these Mormon scholars who did this book, who are going to argue that uh, the Indians are blamed for it. They weren't blamed for it. They were they were drug into it by the by the local folks, white folks. Yeah. So I I kind of want to talk about John D. Lee. You say he was the scapegoat, and most historians I oh, know yeah. um, put that he was kind of the scapegoat in it sure um and a lot of i know that a lot of descendants and even a lot of people in in general look at john d one person was was uh, solely responsible right. for that whole right. thing and, and it's kind of right. a travesty what what are uh, some of your thoughts because i know john d lee is also one of the most colorful characters in utah's past oh, yeah. as well oh yeah what what are some well, of your thoughts about that uh there's no doubt that he is not the only guilty person and certainly may not even be the most guilty person if you want to assign guilt uh, for this horrible thing. Um, that he uh, paid the only ultimate price for it is certainly shameful. And uh, I don't know anybody now, honestly, who thinks otherwise. Was he innocent? The answer is no, he was not. I mean, yeah, he no. confessed uh, it is two trials that he uh, executed uh, some people and murdered some people. And uh, so he he was certainly guilty, and he may have been uh, more active early in that week than anybody else in, in causing the problem to unfold out on the scene. But uh, certainly uh, ended up taking the brunt of the, of the uh, prosecution. Uh, he was convicted, by the way, in his second trial by an all-Mormon jury. He was convinced that, uh, that that he was going to be rescued that by that jury, but uh, they 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 convicted him. His first trial was a half Mormon, half Gentile jury that uh, that was hung. So he was convinced if he had uh, an all Mormon jury, he was going to get off. But by that time, uh, uh, Brigham Young and others are thinking, look, if we can just give him Lee, maybe they'll. They'll leave the rest of these guys alone. And and so, I don't know. I think you could argue pretty clearly that he was a sacrificial. I think people say scapegoat. If you look at the at the biblical meaning of the term scapegoat, maybe a better term is a sacrificial lamb. <laughs> yeah, maybe. Scapegoat. Yeah. What, what do you think and, about... You know, the Lee people, there, there's quite a division in the Lee family. I mean, you may know that Rex Lee, who was president of BYU and uh, so on, Solicitor General of the United States, great-grandson of John D. Lee, uh, Stuart Udall, great-grandson of John D. Lee. There have been some very prominent folks who descend from, from Lee, and some sure. are devoted Mormons, some are not-so-devoted Mormons. Uh, some Lee descendants uh, have changed the spelling of their last name because they're 
ashamed either of their ancestor or they don't want to be associated with uh, his infamy. Uh, <laughs> some of the lead descendants spell it L-E-I-G-H. But I've met lots and lots of lead descendants who are devoted Mormons, who, who uh, uh, feel terrible about what happened to their ancestor. Their, their objective is to try to get uh, people to stop thinking of him as, you mentioned, the only gilded party. They recognize the guilt of their ancestor, but they, they certainly don't want uh, people thinking that, gosh, he's the only one punished, so he must have been the only real bad guy in this story. Lots of bad guys in this story. Yeah. So I know, yeah, I've actually um, read a lot about Lee's family. It's a pretty big and, it's like you said, pretty big and prominent family. I know yeah. it, uh, they even, isn't it true, in the... In the 60s, early 60s, 1960s, some of the Lee's family actually petitioned the church to... Yes. David the- O. McKay, David o. McKay agreed to restore Lee's blessings. And uh, at that time, the blessings of some of these other guys were similarly restored. But it was the Lee family that got that done. I forget the date. You're right. It was in the 60s. It was during the latter part of uh, David O. McKay's uh, administration. What? I know, uh, I th- if I remember right, I think Juanita Brooks actually mentions that in her book. She does. She does. Um, uh, and uh, in, a, in a later edition. Um, the, yeah, they, like I say, there are an awful lot of the leads I've met, gosh, dozens of them over the years now. And uh, many of them are just really devoted Mormons, and uh, others uh, not so devoted Mormons. True. It's a very big family. He had a number of wives, as you know, and. And there are lots of his uh, descendants about. I know that that must have been. I, I, if I remember right, when I read reading in uh, Juanita Brooks's book, that that was quite the controversial thing. Um, the was. church, the church reapproving yeah. John D. Lee's uh, temple yes. to be done. That, yes, yeah, it's very e- controversial. Even to me today, thinking about that, that does kind of put a bad taste in your mouth <laughs> a little bit. Well, it, it it could, but if you were a Lee, it might not. True, very I mean, true. And, and and the other thing you have to remember, Tom, is. When you study history, whether it's religious history or any other kind of history in this case, uh, it is and it isn't. It's militia history. It's state history. It's, it's all kinds of things. But when you study history, uh, it, it's pretty hard for us to sit here in our comfortable setting and look back at Iron County in 1857. Yeah, And I'm not making excuses for these guys. I, I've been accused of that in the past. And even even when I've been in some conversations with Arkansas folks, and they'll say, "Well, are you trying to, you know, are you trying to get these guys off the hook?" And the answer is, "I'm not trying to get anybody off the hook. I'm just saying it. It may give you and me a giant pain in the ribs to think about some of this stuff. But I wasn't there. And I often ask my students. I often ask my students as we're wrestling with this stuff, and some of them are in pain. And I'll say, "Could you do something like this?" And right away you'll see them shaking their heads. No, I couldn't do something like this. The answer is anybody could do something like this. You get the right circumstances in place, and anybody would do something like this. You know, I I, I imagine you're right. I imagine if we could go back in time. No doubt about it. I mean, you say 50 perpetrators were involved. Something like that, yeah. I mean, I, I imagine if you could probably take any of them at random back in the day and say, you know, you're obviously a religious person. Do you find yourself capable of committing cold-blooded murder? They'd yeah. probably say no. No. Other than the, I, I think it's important to note this, and I, I think I said this a little bit before, but it's important to note that 
there was a culture of violence in the West in those days. Uh, Mike Quinn has done quite a bit of uh, good work on the culture of violence it was about. And the, the Mountain Meadows Massacre is certainly a horrific, maybe there's none more horrific uh, in the, the history of the West, unless you start talking about uh, massacres of Native Americans like Sand Creek and uh, uh, in 64 and uh, up here at Bear River in 63 and stuff like that. But when you think about white uh, Americans murdering other white Americans, I think maybe nothing even close. But uh, as you look around the, the West in that time, there was a lot of talk about violence. There was a lot of violence being undertaken, a lot of people being murdered in the name of justice, people being having revenge brought on them. Uh, vigilantes of Montana in the 1870s, I mean, horrific killings there. Uh, you, you look at uh, uh, the Osawatomie Massacre by John Brown uh, that happened out in Kansas in the early 50s. So it, it's it's not a it's not exactly an isolated incident. It may be the most horrific, but it's not an isolated incident. A lot of people were thinking about violence. A lot of people were thinking violent uh, uh, solutions were were perhaps not only all right, but maybe the only possible uh, 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 direction to take in certain circumstances. Once again, let me underline this: I'm not making excuses for anybody, but I am suggesting that as historians, we have to be real careful. Uh, to sit here in 2010 in our circumstances and say, well, uh, look at these rotten buggers and what these rotten guys did. <laughs> you know, we got to be real careful about that. And True. you look at all kinds of these things, like the My Lai Massacre. People have wanted to, a couple of people wanted to make comparison between the My Lai Massacre and the Mountain Meadows Massacre in Vietnam. And, uh, and what we found out, and I've done a lot of reading on that. I'm a vet myself, and I've done a lot of reading on that. And uh, and uh, I don't know, uh, would, would I have shot those people, given the, the circumstances of what had happened in that area in, in Nam before that uh, occurred? I don't know. I, I hope not. Yeah. I hope I would have been one of the guys standing over there saying, wow, this is terrible. You know, you, Callie, you can't do this. And the other guys, what are you doing? But I don't know. Really, really hard to know. That's a tough job for historians. I don't envy you there. <laughs> but uh, well, except that we're trained, Tom, and I think it's important, and and this is important for people who aren't trained to be the way we are. And maybe it's not all good, but it, except that we're trained to look at these kinds of things uh, with, with a bit of coldness. And, and I don't know if that's the right word, but we're supposed to take a look from from a distance and say, okay. Let's be careful about making judgment calls. Let's be careful about using adjectives. Let's be careful about um, assessing uh, somebody's uh, evil intent. Uh, evil done often in the past by people without evil intent doesn't excuse it, but it's still the case. Yeah. Okay, so I want to uh, I want to mention an event in in more recent history that actually meant a lot to me personally. It was on uh-huh. September 11, 2007. It was the 150-year yes. 100, anniversary. Were yeah. you there? Were you there by chance? I was. I read it, and I've actually watched the clip, um, or some of the clips that of some of the speakers that were at that event. Uh-huh. If it's all right with you, I want to play just a, a quick minute clip of President Eyring talking real quick, sure. and then we'll comment after that. Sure. What was done here long ago by members of our church represents a terrible and inexcusable departure from Christian teaching and conduct. We cannot change what happened, but we can remember and honor those who were killed here. 
We express profound regret for the massacre carried out in this valley 150 years ago today and for the undue and untold suffering experienced by the victims then and by their relatives to the present time. A separate expression of regret, regret is owed to the Paiute people who have unjustly borne for too long the principal blame for what occurred during the massacre. Although the extent of their involvement is disputed, it is believed that they would not have participated without the direction and stimulus provided by local church leaders and members. We know, too, that many of those who carried out the massacre were haunted all their lives by what they did and saw on that unforgettable day. You know, uh, Gene, when, when that happened, you know, I was kind of in the middle of, of my own crisis of trying to <laughs> compartmentalize this event that I'd been studying and getting a little obsessed with. And it just seemed ironic that, you know, it was the 150th year anniversary and that happened. And then I got to actually listen to President Eyring, who was an apostle at the time, um, say those words. It, it actually brought me to tears. What, what were some, yeah. what are some of your thoughts? Well, it brought me to tears too. And, uh, when I, I, I hadn't heard that, that, you know, since he said those words, I heard him say them. Uh, but when he said them and when I just listened to him now, it reminds me of the meeting we had with President Hinckley at 47 East South Temple on, uh, in late October 8, 1998 when he met with us, the board, and said words almost exactly like those. Uh, not as detailed, but one of the uh, descendants of John Baker, who was one of the captains of the party, um, he left most of his family in Arkansas, so he has lots of descendants, unlike the Fanchers who, and others who, of course, were killed there. Uh, but anyway, Don Baker from California, yeah, this kind of hard-bitten uh, Arkansas guy with an accent and colorful language, uh, we'll tell you today that uh, he was moved to tears by President Hinckley saying the same words and uh, that, that it was good enough for him. Now, unfortunately, by the time we got down to the monument dedication in 99, uh, the church attorneys or somebody had said to President Hinckley, uh, don't be that regretful and uh, had him uh, more worried about expressing that much regret. And so, the Hinckley speech uh, at the dedication of the of the Carlton uh, rebuilt cairn there on September 11, two, uh, 1999, stopped short of being as regretful as President Eyring was. But in our meeting with him at the board, uh, uh, he was just that regretful. So I, yeah, when I heard President Eyring say that, and I've also heard other church uh, people, uh, Dennis Nuenswander, uh who was there in 99 as the church uh, helping us with the church uh, on the day before we had the funeral. I've said words like the, those. I've heard Marlon Jensen say words like those. And earlier in our discussion, I mentioned how uh, the victims' uh, people uh, have a, a much better feeling now toward uh, the church than they have ever had. And it's partly because of these statements of regret. And again, I, I think this, uh, President Eyring, um, I'm not saying had not, uh, his, his remarks did not suggest that the church had come along way even since 1999 because it had. But that's where it is now. I don't hear uh, church leaders uh, making the kinds of excuses they used to about this. You know, I have to admit that it is a fine line to walk for them because they don't sure. want 
they don't want to admit full responsibility for it, but yet their heart breaks because yet there yeah. there were church members and church leaders involved. So sure, sure. And uh, the other thing that that I think is so important here, Tom, and again, maybe some of your uh, listeners will construe this as me trying to make some sort of excuse. But you have to remember that this was all done under militia command. Now, in Utah, the the guys running the town, the guys running the militia, and the guys running the church were the same guys. It was a theocracy. But there was still Major John Higby ordering Major uh, 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 John D. Lee to do this and that, and it was Colonel William Dame in charge of all this. And and, uh, it doesn't take very long to look around the history of the United States and find these kinds of militia units, a bunch of untrained, uh, poorly disciplined, uh, uh, quasi-military guys under the old militia tradition in the United States doing all kinds of stupid things and committing all kinds of ugly uh, atrocities. And uh, I, I hesitate to bring this up because a lot of apologists for Matt, the Mount Meadows Massacre will bring up the Hans Mill Massacre. But at Hans Mill in Missouri, not so many years before, it was the, the Missouri militia that had come into that town and uh, slaughtered a bunch of innocents. Uh, in the name of, uh, of, of of the state militia. So um, th- there are a lot of ways to look at this. None of it makes it taste any better. <laughs> but uh, I think we have people out there who want to see this from a one-dimensional perspective. And as historians, we're not allowed to do that. we got to take a look at it from all the angles and say, uh, that this is a complicated, complex tragedy, atrocity, use whatever nasty word you can think of. But we got to think about it from a lot of different perspectives in order to understand it very well. I don't think it helps much to uh, say, oh, here's the Mount Meadows Massacre. This proves that uh, Brigham Young was a bad person. Or here's the Mount Meadows Massacre proves that religion is bad. This was Krakauer's thesis, of course. Yeah. It's not just Mormonism, religion in general. Look at all the millions of people who've been slaughtered in the name of God. I mean, look at 9/11. I mean, 9/11, uh, same day, uh, but uh, recently, yeah. all in the name of God. And so, uh, uh, I don't think it helps to, to to think that way. I think it does help us to understand how religion can play a part in all this. Did the teachings of blood atonement? Did the did the blood oaths uh, that people were taking? Uh, and, and it was the the sense of uh, of uh, isolation and and anger that the Mormons were feeling here in Utah in the 1850s? Was this all uh, partly responsible? No doubt about it. But it's complicated. It's deeply complicated. So I I think we have to be pretty careful with this story. It's, it's, uh, as I mentioned earlier in our discussion, it's never going to go away. There's no definitive answers for everything. And nobody's ever going to say, oh, well, I read that book and now I have all the answers. Nobody with a good bit of sense will say that. But there are a whole lot of people running around who've read Will Bagley's book or who've read Sally Denton's book or Krakauer's book or even this book by these three Mormon guys and say, well, now I know. Uh, it, that's, that's far beyond the humility of good historians and people who want to understand history. Yeah, I've <laughs> for me, I've, I've read as many books as I can get get my hands on them, and I've stayed away from Sally Denton's book primarily because what you recommended prior to this book. Yeah, I, yeah, I, I think Sally uh, missed the boat entirely. I have a lot of respect for Will's book. Again, I recommended it to the University of Oklahoma Press to be published. Uh, 
because of the prodigious research he did. I don't agree with his thesis. I've been pretty outspoken about that. Um, I think that uh, Turley and uh, Walker and Leonard have got it at about 99%. I'm convinced. I'm persuaded. Uh, when you look at a book that's uh, one, one-fourth of the book is uh, footnotes, and uh, you know those are accurately being uh, perused and, and scrutinized, yeah, uh, you, you you you're gonna have to put some credence in what those guys have put together there, but yeah, I don't I don't recommend uh, uh, Sally Den's book uh, being of much use. Yeah, when I read the uh, Turley Walker Leonard book, um, it ended right where I knew that a lot of the big stuff, and I'm I'm really anxious to, I guess I'm anxious to read it. I'll be one of the first ones to buy it. Yeah, but I'll have too. to I'll have to make sure uh, I'm not. Eat, reading it on a full stomach at the same time, but yeah. anyway. Yeah. But I I do want to uh, before we let you go. I want I want to hear what you you know some of your recommendations for guys like me. How how you you know what kind of advice you'd give for a person that uh, finds this kind of event terribly um, distressing. Well, I think there are two or three ways to deal with it, and I've talked with a whole lot of folks over the years who've had your experience and others and I might have been persuasive to some and much less for others like I mentioned my best friend earlier um, uh, one one thing I think we need to remember is that uh, and I, I've already made this point but let me make it again more briefly uh, this is a complicated event uh, it's so complicated that we will have always a difficult time answering the question how could it have happened how could these ordinarily decent human beings, and I think they were, uh, do such an absolutely atrocious thing to their to their fellow human beings, uh, children, helpless uh, innocents. Uh, it, it, it's just so complicated that I think the first thing you have to do is say, I can't make any final judgments about, about anything based on this due to the complexity of it. The second thing I think is important that people say, well, uh, if Brigham Young bears any guilt in this whatsoever, I don't care whether it's indirect or complicity or uh, uh, the cover-up or anything like this, and that proves the guy was not a prophet. Well, uh, <laughs> if you're going to have any faith in religion at all, and I mean the next step has to be, well, you just become an atheist because there's not a religion on the planet, including the, uh, the religion of the Jews in the Old Testament, where leaders didn't order and were uh, not complicit in these same kinds. Anyway, Ezekiel ordered the Hebrews to slaughter every man, woman, maiden, dog, pig, I mean, <laughs> everything. You're and, right and, about that. Yeah, and and uh, so does that mean that this guy was not a prophet? Well, I don't know. If you read the Old Testament and you're a believer in the Bible, you, you'd have to say, well, uh, no, that doesn't mean that at all. So I think the second thing is... Uh, Let's withhold our judgment on whether or not somebody uh, is a prophet or a holy person or whatever like that based on these kinds of events because you're going to be hard-pressed to find any religious leader or any group of religious leaders where you don't have this sort of story. And I think the third thing that's important about this is Mormonism suffers from uh, the problem of being a new religion. People... Uh, we have more access to the whole history of Mormonism than the Catholics have to their whole history because it's their history is however many hundreds or thousands of years old. We're intimate with everything that has happened 
in the past 160, 70 years. So you can you can pick and pick and pick at the scabs on Joseph Smith, and you can pick at the scabs on Brigham Young, and you can pick at all this kind of stuff, and come to the conclusion: well, you know, there's there's no evidence here that this is this is a, a clean, righteous story of clean, righteous men who do only clean, righteous things. Uh, I think we ask too much of human beings when we expect that sort of behavior. So I think that's part of what I'd said to you earlier about uh, trying to assess blame and trying to assess guilt for for uh, these people in Iron County, or if you wish, even for uh, Brigham Young and his associates uh, as as being responsible for this horrible thing. It's too complicated for that. So I don't know. I, I think the way to deal with it, if you're if you're a Mormon and you're stumbling onto the Mount Meadows massacre and you're thinking, "Gosh, this uh, shakes my faith," uh, you have to remember what the definition of faith is. It's something that you don't know. It's something you feel. Uh, Paul's definition. We're all familiar with it. So uh, we're not going to find uh, uh, verification for Brigham Young's d- divine calling as a prophet in the good things he did or in the bad things he did. You're going to find that in what's in your heart. And if it's not in your heart, then certainly these kinds of historical events can shake you up and make you think that there was never much to it anyway. And and as you uh, mentioned, I mentioned to you, uh, people have walked out the back door of the church over this. I'm not sure that's a good idea. I think you need to decide that based on other kinds of issues and not on these sorts of historical questions. Well, you give good advice, and well, I hope so. <laughs> and I, I am immensely grateful for you just spending a little bit of time and sharing your immense knowledge and your experience with with us, and especially with me. Um, it really means a lot that you were willing to come on with with us tonight. So I appreciate that. Well, I hope it's been helpful, Tom. I, I don't claim to be the expert on this event. I'm not. There are people who know a lot more about it than I do, and. I hope I didn't come across tonight as uh, pontificating in any way, shape, or form about it. Uh, but I have, uh, like you, I've I've spent uh, I've spent a lot more years than you have because I started uh, doing work on the massacre about the time you were being born. <laughs> and I've worried about this a long time, and I've suffered with it a lot. I've shed a lot of tears that summer of '99 when I was involved on the ground down there as we dug up those uh, bones and as we had all those experiences. Uh, I, I've, I've had my share of deep emotion about it as well. But uh, as we conclude, I can just tell you it hasn't affected uh, one way or the other uh, how I feel about uh, Mormonism. Uh, that comes from someplace else for me, and I'm not, uh, I'm not uh, in a position to have this story or any other story in our history uh, influence me on that side of my life because I don't make my decisions on that side of my life based on this kind of stuff. Well, thank you. And I, I do strongly disagree. I do think that you are an expert in this. And I, and I, well, you're, you're kind. <laughs> I, I, I think I'm probably, I think I'm probably a little well versed in 90% of, of or 99% of, of Mormons or even historians on it because I spent so much time with it. But, but I have a whole lot I don't know. I, well, I'm humbled when I sit down with Rick Turley and some of these guys. I mean, I have a student who came to me the other day, and he said, you know, my brother uh, happened to be in a meeting with Rick Turley, and Turley looked at his name tag and said, oh, uh, there's a guy uh, with your name who was involved in the massacre. And it turned out it was an incidental person who was traveling with another company that showed up once in the book 
Oh. And Shirley was able to tell this guy all about his ancestor, where he came from, uh, how he was involved in uh, the Duke Party, and that he was a sheriff in Arkansas. This guy had no idea about his ancestor. And Rick Turley, off Puffy's head, uh, filled him in on his whole family history. So that's how deeply these guys have investigated this story. I don't know anywhere close to what those guys know. True. And, and you know, somebody like Will Back don't agree with Will about much of, on, in terms of his thesis, but he sure knows a lot more than I do, and uh, he's just taken a different uh, tack on what it all means. So I, again, I don't mean to sound falsely humble either. I just, I, I just, this is something I've wrestled with a whole long time, and I'm comfortable talking about it, but. I don't want anybody to think, oh, the guy thinks he knows it. because <laughs> I don't. I don't. But, I, but honestly, and this is genuine for me, I, I truly admire the fact that you are willing to become a part of the Mountain Meadows Association to meet with some of the descendants and to develop strong friendships. I think that says a lot. And Well, I'm, I'm that kind of guy anyway. And uh, <laughs> I, I like people, and I like to have people like me, and so... It's been wonderful over the years to get to know some of these people, and I won't tell you that all of them like me that much. I mean, oh. I had bat heads with a few of them, and and uh, but um, but I do have some really deep uh, affections for some of these people, and and uh, when we see each other, it, it literally is hug and and shed tears about we haven't seen you for too long, kind of a thing. Great, and that's that's neat. Well, again, thank you, Professor Gene Sessions, for coming on the show. This is- with us well, and thank you, Tom. Hope, hope it does some good for somebody who who wants to know more and who may be uh, maybe wrestling with this. Mm-hmm.